Hey guys, welcome back to Thick and Thin with me, Katie Bilotti, and today on the pod, things are getting crazy, pun intended, because we're talking about crazy exes, quote crazy exes, and a crazy woman from history named Martha Mitchell, who it turns out wasn't as crazy as people thought she was. So we're going to be talking about all sorts of things today, um, a lot of which having to do with women that are painted in a certain light uh, where they're labeled as crazy by people who used to date them, by people who used to be friends with them. Why do we jump to calling someone crazy over just describing them as they were, as they are, and describing the situation? In a breakup, why do people often call their exes crazy instead of describing what actually went down and why they aren't compatible or maybe, just maybe, admitting that some of the fault was actually theirs in the relationship. So we're going to talk about that today. I put out some polls on my Instagram story that generated really interesting results that I want to talk about. So we'll be talking about that, the psychology involved, little bits and pieces here and there. But the bulk of today's episode will be covering the story of Martha Mitchell, who was a woman figure uh, involved in the Watergate scandal. And I recall throughout my early life when I was learning about Watergate, which if you guys don't know what that is, I'll I'll do a little SparkNotes version of uh, the story in a few minutes. But essentially, when I was first learning about Watergate in school, I learned about it from a journalistic lens because I was studying journalism like a lot in in high school. As many of you guys know, I was actually editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, the ultimate nerd job, (laughs) the title, whatever. Um, But I loved it so much. I would go to school like an hour early to get there before the bell rang so I could like well before so I could knock out some stories knock out some uh some editing and some layout design I did so many different I wore a lot of different hats when I worked for the newspaper but in the journalism course that we were required to take to be in newspaper, we learned about Woodward and Bernstein, which were two journalists uh, that covered Watergate that were largely involved in the initial kind of breaking of the news of the Watergate scandal, which took place in Washington, D.C. at the Watergate building um, or the Watergate. I suppose it was it was an office. It was a hotel. It was just like a complex, maybe. Um, And essentially what happened was this was during the uh, Nixon reelection campaign and some uh, masked burglars, five men uh, were were caught wiretapping or trying to tap into the Watergate building, which was where the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, uh, essentially rallying for the election of a Democratic candidate, not not Nixon, so the bad guys for the Nixon campaign, they uh, sent, essentially now we'll learn, it was a really a spooky, really creepy ordeal where they were sent there to wiretap and to uh, get information for the, the re-election campaign and sketchy things that we will talk about. But honestly, we won't be talking too, too much about that because I want to talk a lot about Martha and her just her being, her essence, and who she was, because she was incredible, and she was also involved in the Watergate scandal uh, on the good side, on the truth-bearing side, and a lot of people just called her crazy. Uh, the Nixon campaign loved painting her as a crazy person, so she wouldn't 
wouldn't get them caught, essentially. So we're going to talk about Martha. In 1972, the world laughed at Martha Mitchell. They called her mentally ill. The Mouth of the South was her nickname for her outspokenness. She was painted as an alcoholic who was always crying wolf. However, though, once the true events of the Watergate scandal hit newsstands across the globe, people began to rethink their laughter their dinnertime conversations about Martha Mitchell's insanity. They began to wonder instead, how much did the wife of Nixon's campaign advisor really know? Was she trying to warn us? And we instead believed the men that she was trying to warn us about. So we'll be doing Martha Mitchell some justice today on the pod. I intend on telling her story because, as I said earlier, I largely learned in school about the men involved in the story, the men involved in the justice bringing, the journalists and, and that, that sort of thing, and not much about this woman who, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things shrouded in mystery with her, but there are some hard, hard glaring facts that we do know about the situation that... I don't think a lot of people know about. And what we'll talk about today will make you feel better, I think, if you've ever been labeled or thought of yourself as, quote, crazy, or a bit strange, or a bit outspoken, or any combination of those sorts of things. So if that is someone that you believe you are, or you're scared of being, listen up, because we're going to talk about the actual good in potentially being, quote, crazy. Uh, the word that has taken on a whole new meaning in this day and age and and really is misused a lot, to be honest. So I'm going to be careful with it. But when I say, quote, crazy, know that I'm not referring to someone who is mentally ill. It's more so the social way that it's used now. It's lazy to paint someone as crazy. It takes more guts. It takes more um, more intelligence to label them as what they actually are and use use some different words. So anyway, that and more in today's episode of Thick and Thin. I'm so excited about this one. So of course, this is a rhetorical question, but just think about the answer to yourself. Think to yourself what you would say if I asked you, what does it really mean when a person calls their ex crazy? What does it really mean when a person calls their ex-best friend crazy, their ex boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, what does it mean when someone calls another person they used to be close with crazy? And when I asked you guys on Instagram, I got so many mixed things. I got people saying that crazy should never be used in this context because of just how politically incorrect it is. And then I also had people saying that crazy oftentimes is just a lazy way of just saying that it didn't work out or it's just the easy thing to say if you had an ex that maybe had some characteristics that were a bit much. Um, And I've had people say that sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes there are people that are really deserving of being called crazy because they do kind of absurd things, um, kind of borderline obsessive things. But all of which, you know, with all these things, I feel like it's just a lot of a lot of talk, a lot of hubbub surrounding something that could just be as simple as my ex stalked me or my ex did a number of things, some things that maybe triggered me or things that made me upset and not want to be with them anymore. You know, I like it honestly when someone's telling me like, oh, if they have a crazy person in their life, they don't just say, I had a crazy accent, leave it at that, they go into a bit more detail because oftentimes you'll find that some of the things someone paints as being crazy tendencies 
could kind of have been taken out of context, honestly, in some instances. And I'm always just willing to hear the full story to make sure that the person that is being painted as crazy, the domino effect doesn't occur. And I'm going around saying, oh, yeah, my, my current boyfriend, he had a crazy ex, you know, because that could be slander in some instances. But I just genuinely across the board think for the most part that when someone calls someone else crazy, even if it's a girl talking about another girl or any other context, I think it oftentimes says a bit more about them, the person saying it, than it says about the crazy person. Even if it's warranted, I just feel like there's so many better ways or better things to call the person than crazy because you know, I'm working on this myself. I don't want to say that I'm perfect in this. I've probably even said on the podcast, someone's a crazy person before. And I'm learning as I've gotten older and as I've, you know, encountered more people that that isn't always where we should leave the story. We should definitely, if someone, you know, acted in a certain way, maybe not not sharing all the personal details of, of your life happenings with this person, but if it means just kind of opening our perspectives a bit to see the full picture, I think that's what we should do. If someone that we were involved with maybe acted in a certain way or did a certain thing and you know, maybe it kind of in our eyes was a bit crazy, maybe we should take a step back, see the full picture. I know it's not really very fun or glamorous when you just want to say, oh, the person was crazy and be done with it, but take a step back and see the person's actions for what it truly was. You know, even if the person did something a bit absurd, like I had someone DM me saying that, um, you know, this this person they were with, their ex had flown 100 miles across or 1,000 miles across the country or something and landed on the, the guy's doorstep unannounced or something of that nature. And that's a bit, quote, crazy. And yeah, I don't know. It's maybe not something that I would personally do. But instead of saying they're crazy, maybe we should say, oh, they were misguided. Or maybe we should consider that maybe there's another story there that we don't know anything about. Uh, we don't know what the guy was necessarily saying. And not to say that it's always the guy's fault uh, in every scenario, but a lot of times there's a lot of details that are left out or we're only given half of the story. So I don't know, just even researching these quote crazy women that, you know, I'm about to talk about today and I've talked about in previous episodes has kind of made me rethink the whole idea of crazy women. You know, there was that meme that circulated for a couple of years, I feel like crazy ex-girlfriend or the crazy girlfriend, you know, I see her face in my nightmares sometimes because she just has one of those faces, this meme, this girl who's become a meme. And I just, I can't believe that this is where we've come, like <laughs> crazy ex-girlfriend. What about the crazy ex-boyfriend? Jeez. But I just think it often does say more about the person than it says about the crazy person. When someone calls an ex crazy, it shows your true colors in terms of how much empathy you have and how much compassion you have or lack thereof. It can also come honestly from a place of heartache too. If the person had been dumped and of course felt embarrassed about it or sad about it, it's easy for them to just say, oh, they're crazy and tell as many people that will listen that they're crazy instead of just just saying that it was kind of this breakup where it was this thing that maybe wasn't so glamorous and or you know maybe there was a reason that this person felt compelled I don't know I just think that there's so much more going on with a lot of scenarios than we will ever know and I intend on getting to the bottom of many of these quote crazy women and crazy stories I mean if you think about let's take it back to to mean girls think Regina George and Janice that relationship where uh Regina 
who of course we now know is just not the uh, not the best okay she's not like a role model for girls necessarily at all and of course there's reasons for the way she was which we have to say and think about you know that her mom is the way she is uh amy poehler's character you know of course growing up in that sort of home maybe doesn't make you the most wholesome person just saying just going out on a limb there so of course regina has reasons for the way she was but that doesn't that doesn't make it okay that she spread all these rumors about Janice, you know, being a lesbian and all these things. And she's so obsessed with me when in actuality they just fell out of friendship or, you know, I kind of forget the full, full details of that whole scenario, but I know that she kind of resorted to calling Janice crazy, calling her all these names and all these things and avoiding her when they were best friends because it's easier than confronting what actually happened and telling people the ugly truth and the fact that maybe she was maybe involved in it because of course we always want to be the hero we want to be the good person the person that escaped the crazy person we don't ever want to be held responsible for the way things ended we never want to be in that position so sometimes it's easier to call someone crazy than to admit that the person had maybe qualities about them that maybe were too much for you to handle and i've discussed it before how too much can sometimes be and oftentimes can be a really good thing I feel too much all the time. I feel like I'm talking too much or I'm too loud or I'm too passionate about stupid things. And sometimes when I'm with my friends, even the people that are supposed to love me most of all and that do, of course, besides my parents and all, but you know, my closest, closest friends, I sometimes feel around them that I'm too much. And I'll send a text sometimes and be like, oh shoot, I maybe shouldn't have said that. Like maybe that was too much. Or maybe my enthusiasm about this thing is too much. And I catch myself thinking that. And I know other people do too. But when you're literally bursting at the seams with goodness, with enthusiasm, excitement, all of these things, it's just, honestly, it's so powerful. And I don't think that we should be ashamed of that. And that doesn't justify, I want to say, you know, of course, that doesn't justify intrusive behavior or coming on too strong to the point where it's it's making someone else feel really, really uncomfortable. Not like uncomfortable in the sense of like they're kind of out of their, they, they feel out of their element or they feel that this is new and different and they don't like new and different. It's putting someone's safety at risk is not good, as we know, and kind of going too far pushing past boundaries where a person was either triggered before or a number of different things. You have to be careful with some people. You definitely do. And you should tread semi-lightly around touchy areas and give people their space and give people their time and all the things that we should do, that we learn to do over time and through having thoughtful conversations with people. But for the most part, being too much, it's not something you should be ashamed of, okay? Even if it paints you as being crazy. Because some of the most amazing minds in our world, women in our world that have accomplished amazing things. Like we think of people like Hedy Lamar, who I covered in a previous podcast. We think about just, I'm literally blanking on every woman I've ever covered, but you know, I've, I've covered Toni Morrison, a lot of people that just went against the grain and did things in their time that were considered a bit crazy. Now we thank them for changing our world. You know, I've said it before. I've heard this written a lot. You will be too much for some people, but those people that you are too much for aren't your people. So take your crazy elsewhere, (laughs) essentially. Those are kind of my preliminary thoughts on this, but I do want to read. So I did put on my Instagram polls a few little prompts and I want to read your 
your reactions to these prompts and kind of talk about them. So I said, uh, have you ever had a significant other that has called their ex crazy? And out of the poll, 62% said yes, 38% said no. And a lot of people that said yes, or yeah, that said yes, had kind of DM me and said like, and given their whole story, which was so interesting to read the various stories you guys have um, had, a lot of which are kind of defending the guy in the situation. If it's in a relationship and you're dating a guy and they said their ex is crazy, a lot of people were backing up their current boyfriend or ex-boyfriend in that way. And, you know, of course, I read what you say and I can't really uh, argue with it because, of course, I don't know the full story, but I always do just challenge you and challenge me to look in a bit deeper and think about how there's two sides to every story because there often, there always is, of course, but, you know, a lot of times you only hear one of them. So that's all I'm going to say about that, really. Um, Another slide that I posted said, when we think of the word crazy... When it comes to describing women specifically, what kinds of things come to mind? And I screenshotted a few, uh, well, a few slides of things. You guys, so many, so many things. It was so easy for you guys to come up with words to describe a crazy woman. Isn't that crazy in itself that it was so easy (laughs) because we hear them a lot? Um, So someone said obsessive. Someone said someone who's controlling, emotional, obsessive again, um, aggressive, outspoken, Someone that doesn't let their ex do their own thing. Stage five, clinger. Um, Clingy, again, possessive, insecure, jealous, lying, out of control. (laughs) Someone said, "My, my boyfriend's ex went through his laptop and read all of his messages. Cheating, manipulative, lying, jealous, stalking. Uh, So a lot of those words came to mind. And of course, a lot of those things are not okay in a healthy relationship and there should definitely be boundaries in a healthy relationship and a lot of these things just aren't okay and aren't tolerated but a lot of times you know these aren't necessarily the things that an ex has done to be called crazy spoiler alert a lot of times they were just themselves and they were called crazy so i'm just you know i'm just trying to give us level heads here and then the last slide that i said um is a man calling his ex-girlfriend crazy a red flag and 80 percent of you guys said yes 20 percent said no so really interesting i also read a bunch of dms from you guys just kind of just detailing situations you've been in and it seems like honestly this is a bigger buzz topic than i thought just having people in your life call others crazy Like I have definitely sat at a lot of dinner tables with girls, with people, um, with guys. I was friends with a ton of guys in in college and you know, even now, but different guys. But at the time in college, I distinctly recall multiple occasions when these guys would call girls crazy, would call a girl crazy. And then I would see them going home together at the end of the night. And that always struck me because I've also heard that guys quote, love crazy girls. And like, what does that say about them? Is it because they they like to fight and that like is a turn on for them? Or I don't know. There's so many, so many things wrapped into this and it really just gets me thinking. At the end of the day, I feel like it's best to just say things how they actually are and not settling just for the word crazy because it's easy and it's something that is kind of universally understood. When a guy says to his friends when he's like chilling, playing PlayStation, I don't know. Oh, like that girl, she's crazy. Like, I feel like guys all kind of nod their heads and are like, yeah, dude, I get it. I get it. Like, 
and they understand what that means. And crazy can mean all sorts of things, truly, in this day and age, because it's not really, it's taken so out of context of where where it began, of course. So yeah, I'm not perfect with this either. I'm definitely going to work on it, uh, work on seeing the full story of why someone is the way they are. And maybe if I hear someone say, oh, that girl's crazy, uh, don't just leave it at that. I want to kind of pry a little bit and be like, oh, so why do you say that? Do you say that because uh, maybe she was a little bit passionate about this thing or maybe she was afraid to lose you or a number of different things and things from her perspective? And honestly, of course, like, I mean, I've learned this in therapy. My therapist has told me this numerous times, like the way that you have an argument with someone, the way that you kind of even speak to someone is first acknowledging the other person and just giving value to what they're saying. And so I think oftentimes when we're kind of judging people, we should first, before we launch into our judgments, even if this conversation is happening just fully in our heads with ourselves, we should first think about the other person's POV. Think about the reason why they did said thing. And think about what maybe we did to prompt that. That's just the way that I strive to kind of change things moving forward with me and and kind of reframe the word crazy and kind of give it back to where it came from and not use it as much anymore because I feel like I do I have used the word crazy a lot to describe people and that is just so limiting and it makes me feel sad for myself honestly because there's so many other other ways I can describe people truthful ways and honestly a lot of times maybe me calling someone crazy is because I am just unable to come up with a word to describe them because they are that brilliant. Uh, so closing this little discussion, I want to read this quote from Steve Jobs. You guys have definitely heard before. It's iconic. Um, just an amazing quote. It says, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. But the only thing you can't do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius because the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. Steve Jobs, rest in peace. Love him. Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs and projects done well. Let me tell you, there's the version of it where you try to do something at home, and then there's a version of it where you have someone help you, you watch them do it the right way, and you go, thank God I didn't try to do that myself. I have fully done things around the home that I think look good, and then a bang in the night, and I wake up to a shelf collapsing, a painting falling off the wall. Like it, I've, I've seen it all go south. I own a home, and I can tell you... I know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Whatever your home project, big or small, indoor or outdoor, you can Angie that and connect with skilled professionals to get the project done well. Right now, one of my wish lists is I want a bike for my condo in Milwaukee and I would love to rig it up on a pulley in the ceiling because I have one of those like lofted ceilings, but I'm so scared to try that on my own. Angie has 20 years of home experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of any home project in just a few taps. 
Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So we're not done talking about crazy people. We're going to talk about Martha Mitchell in full detail, starting right now. I, before a couple of days ago, when I started looking into her story, I had never heard about this very specific, loud-mouthed Southern woman involved in the Watergate scandal. And I'm so sad that I'd never heard about her before. A lovely one of you guys, I love when you slide in my DMs so, so much. One of you guys slid in my DMs and told me to look into the story of Martha Mitchell because it would knock my socks off. And truly, it did. And so today, I'm going to share my findings with you guys, um, her upbringing, all the things that history has left out because I think that she is someone we can really take notes from and uh, overall her story at parts is, is really sad and I feel like even those parts should be known because she went through a lot more than people wanted to give her credit for. Um, she went through a lot of things that women and people in general should never go through. And so I want to talk about those things as well. Um, the thick and the thin of Martha's story. So let's take it way back to the beginning. Martha Elizabeth Beale Jennings Mitchell. She was married twice and she had a long name to begin with. Was born on a farm in Pine Bluff, Arkansas on September 2nd, 1918. And as a little girl, Martha liked to sing, and she was a member of her church choir. Her mother had big dreams for Martha becoming an opera singer one day, among other jobs that were great for women, of course. And uh, Martha herself, though, went through a slew of different career aspirations. First up was a pediatrician, but she had some issues with that. She was actually dyslexic, so in school she had some problems um, with courses involved with speaking aloud. She wanted to be an actress, which her parents wouldn't allow, among other aspirations in the arts. With her Southern accent and her many different aspirations for life, her outspokenness, Martha had what some would call a big personality. So this is honestly really telling about the rest of her life and just her as a person. Under her high school yearbook photo was a quote that said, love its gentle warble. I love its gentle flow. I love to wind my tongue up and I love to let it go. So essentially speaking, singing, making noise. She went to college and despite loving all sorts of different things and just really had her hand on a lot of things, she eventually settled on being a history major. And after school, uh, she actually took a job as a seventh grade teacher in Alabama, but she hated every second of it. So she left teaching and took a secretary job for the Pine Bluff Arsenal in Arkansas, which was a place that housed army supplies. And this was after World War II. She apparently impressed some people there because she was soon transferred to Washington, D.C., which was where she met her first husband, Clyde Jennings. Clyde Jennings Jr., who was a U.S. Army officer from Lynchburg, Virginia. 
they got married in 1946 and they had one son together and they stayed together just shy of 11 years before eventually divorcing. Um, And the reason for the divorce, so essentially Clyde was discharged from the army at some point and after that he took up work as a traveling handbag salesman. And with this job, Martha hardly ever saw him. She had a a kid at home and was just overall really distressed by this. So they uh, cut things off in 1957. So her divorce from Clyde was finalized in August of 1957. And by that December, Martha already had a new husband. His name was John Mitchell. And upon first meeting John, Martha was, quote, impressed with his suaveness and intellect. They were very much in love, and like I said, they got married in December, and it was both of their second marriages. And from there, a very classic tale sort of ensued. They had a daughter who they named Marty in 1961, and they lived in Rye, a New York City suburb. Martha was the typical housewife. She drove John to and from the train station every day. They were a picture-perfect couple, as far as anyone knew. And truly, at this point, I believe that they were. They were very much in love, and they lived a really great life together. And John was working at a law firm, and eventually his firm merged with another firm. Something happened there. And this was how he eventually came in contact with a man named Richard Nixon, who we know would go on to being the president of the United States. And it was Martha who actually persuaded John to become Nixon's campaign manager in 1967. So as we know, Richard Nixon won the presidency um, during this campaign. And because of all this, because of John's involvement with the campaign, Martha soon really regretted her decision of telling John to get involved because it meant that once again, kind of reminiscent of her previous husband, John was never home. He was hardly ever home. He was very much devoted to the campaign and to Nixon. And so in 1968, uh, 11 years into their marriage, she actually asked a lawyer to begin drafting divorce papers. And it's kind of unclear the transition um, in terms of how she went from drafting these divorce papers to in a medical facility for a long-term illness, which could have either been linked to potential alcoholism or something mental. Uh, Very unclear, but she stayed in this facility, this sanitarium for a few weeks. And it's unclear whether she entered voluntarily or whether John Mitchell sent her there. But this was apparently a very minor little rift in their marriage, just a blip on the radar. They were back together, happier than ever, after this stint. And at this point in the story, it's a minor detail. But I encourage you to remember this tiny detail for later in our story. So once Nixon won the election in 1968, he named John Mitchell as attorney general, which is a huge honor. And Martha, as wife to the attorney general, made many, many press appearances and spoke often to reporters. She was constantly on TV, constantly talking to magazines and newspapers. She was very much loved by reporters because she did disclose a lot of information, often things funny and she was very uh, she had a great sense of humor and all of those things and she said pretty outlandish things for a housewife as she was kind of known and while many were shocked by her remarks Nixon at the time apparently considered her a secret weapon and this man named Clark Mollenhoff who was special counsel to Nixon later said that Martha's comments were actually useful to the Nixon campaign because or the Nixon administration at this point because they expressed opinions that Nixon and other Republicans like couldn't publicly say out loud what they really did believe in and somehow Martha could say it just fine it got 
no negative press from Martha saying it. It was all fine and dandy. Uh, but people saw the Nixon administration's true true thoughts and feelings. And so it's kind of beneficial for them. So Martha was actually known for phoning reporters unexpectedly, just like at the drop of the hat would give a reporter a call and be like, here's the tea. And that was how Martha got her nickname, quote, the mouth from the South. But as the years ticked on and, you know, Martha was still involved with the administration, of course, as the attorney general's wife and was doing a lot of appearances and, you know, was just a part of the administration in some way, shape or form. And as the years went on, though, she became more and more disappointed in the Nixon administration. Many of their political decisions just didn't sit well with her. She was not fully invested in a lot of the decisions, especially those in the realm of Nixon appointing women for different positions. He had promised to appoint, you know, put women in powerful positions, and he just didn't, apparently, as far as uh, she had wanted, and things with just war, and she was not extremely happy with the Nixon administration, and she was voicing concerns And I read about one incident that happened on Air Force One via this website called Necessary Storms, which I'll link in the show notes. All my sources will be linked to the show notes as usual. But in this situation, I'm going to read from the website. It says, a reporter asked Martha about a fashion trend. And Martha replied, oh, Helen, why don't you ask me about something important? Which, honestly, I feel her pain here. A very intelligent, really you know, of course, loudmouth woman, but this this woman deserves to be asked more things than just about fashion. You know, there, there should be more things involved in interviews than just what you're wearing, especially because men are asked hard-hitting questions when oftentimes women are just asked about who they're wearing and things of that nature. So I feel her pain here. So after Martha said, you know, ask me about something important, the reporter said, okay, what do you think about the Vietnam War? Kind of expecting maybe Martha to have something funny to say or maybe nothing at all. And Martha said, it stinks. And she said more as reporters on on the flight abandoned their their card game and pulled out their pens and notepads. And she went on to say more. She said, "Uh, we shouldn't have gotten into the war in the first place. The Nixon administration inherited it and they're trying their best to get out of it. And so she said all these things and eventually someone heard about it, of course, when it was published and she never flew on the presidential plane ever again. After that. And here's where our story heats up a bit. It was June 22nd, 1972, when Martha Mitchell called a reporter named Helen, the same one that she'd spoken to on Air Force One and urged to ask her about something more important. That Helen. Her name was Helen Thomas. And Martha called her up to say that she was leaving her husband. And you might think it's a little bit strange for a woman to call this hard news reporter to tell them that, you know, she's leaving her husband. But as we know, Martha had a reputation for calling reporters out of the blue and all of these things that we'd known about her. Uh, but, you know, given her husband's title, looking back, it should have been treated more as a red flag than a fragment of meaningless gossip, especially the timing of it all. So Martha had told Helen that she was going to leave her husband until he quit as chairman of the Nixon re-election campaign. She said over the phone, I've given John an ultimatum. I'm going to leave him unless he gets out of the campaign. I'm sick and tired of politics. Politics is a dirty business. And ultimately, once this information was 
released by Helen to the public, it was met with some eye rolls because as we know, Martha had this reputation. She had gone pretty quickly from being this Republican darling that everyone loved to a potentially sick woman who drank too much and spoke too loudly and all sorts of other things that we'll hear about later. But doesn't it seem a little bit strange that she was leaving her husband given the timing of it all? Martha, being the wife of the Nixon re-election campaign chairman, says five days after the mysterious Watergate break-in, when, as I said earlier, five men, one of whom says he used to work for the CIA, were arrested at 2.30 in the morning. Um, This was on June 17th, 1972. They were trying to bug the offices of the Democratic National Committee, which was located at the Watergate Hotel and office complex in D.C. So she had called Helen to give this information just five days after this break-in. And for context, and, you know, of course, for those of you who don't live in the U.S. and might need a refresher... Nixon was a Republican. He was wishing to be reelected as president and the Democratic nominee at the time, who I actually had to research because I didn't know. I I just don't really remember, of course, because I wasn't alive at this time. Um, George McGovern of South Dakota was the Democratic nominee in this race. And within the walls of the DNC, the Democratic National Committee offices, where you know, people were trying to bug it. Now we know, of course, they were from the side of Nixon and his campaign, and it was sketchy behavior and things. Within the walls of the DNC, strategy is discussed, top secret strategy, information that could help win a race. So it was a big deal that the offices were bugged and all the things that happened after that. But essentially, Helen is hearing Martha say over the phone, I'm leaving my husband, like, until he... Uh, steps down as chairman because I just can't deal with this politics stuff. Politics is a dirty business. Okay, what does that mean? We should probably look into that. So anyway, back to the call. So after Martha said this to Helen over the phone, out of nowhere, after the words left her mouth, out of nowhere, the call was dropped. And it had seemed from Helen's point of view that Martha had hung up the phone midway through speaking. And she reported later that the conversation ended when it seemed that someone had taken the phone from her hand. Helen said she was heard to say, you just get away, and then nothing at all. So it's kind of like Martha was on the phone saying these things and then, you know, saw someone approaching her, trying to take the phone away from her, and said, you just get away, and then the phone line cuts out. A friend of Martha's, Winzola McLendon, who was an author and journalist, and she worked on Martha's biography later in life, described the incident in her 1979 publication. She said that Stephen King, not to be confused with the author Stephen King, this is Stephen King, an ex-FBI agent who in 1972 was working as a security aide for um, essentially, it's called Creep, it's the Committee to Re-elect the President. So these are the guys and girls that are trying to re-elect the previous president, so Nixon at the time. Winzola wrote in the biography that Stephen King, quote, rushed into Martha's bedroom, threw her back against the bed, and ripped the telephone out of the wall. And more on that in a second, but a quick aside that just makes my blood boil in this situation. Actually, a few years ago, President Trump gave a prestigious job to Stephen King, the same Stephen King who did this, to Martha. He is now, uh, as of 2017, he's now the United States ambassador to the Czech Republic. So it's just just absolutely blood boiling that he has a prestigious job after it's been on numerous accounts that he had done this to Martha. Whatever. 
Anyway, I'm upset about it, but we're gonna keep going to the story. After Stephen King ripped the phone out of the wall, he apparently locked Martha in one of the rooms, but she climbed on the balcony to try to escape. And he went back after her, pulled her back inside, handling her super harshly throughout all of this, giving her many bruises. And the next morning, she actually tried again to escape. She slipped downstairs, but Stephen King saw her just as she reached the door. Another scuffle between the two of them ensued and it was so so violent that Martha's actually her left hand went through glass and she was badly cut up she had to get stitches so this was crazy uh why was he restraining her so badly why did he not want her to talk what did she know or what did he think she knew So taking things a bit back in time, prior to her phone call with Helen, according to an article by Newsweek, Martha had been complaining vaguely to anyone who would listen about this creep situation, Um, creep being, again, the committee to reelect the president, and their carrying out of dirty tricks against the Democrats. She apparently was telling anyone who would listen that things were sketchy and that, you know, things weren't right there. Even though she was a devout Republican, she was really loved by many Republicans, although she maybe was a bit quirky to some. Uh, the fact that she was really concerned about what was happening in the race and happening with this group of, of men and women uh, that was trying to reelect Nixon was kind of a red flag, if you if you ask me. Eventually, Martha would find out about this man named James McCord and his involvement with Watergate. So James McCord was named as one of the people that was busted at the scene trying to bug or trying to break in and bug Watergate, uh, the DNC offices. So the significance behind this, so James McCord was actually the security director of Creep, and he was also personally responsible for Martha's security. Uh, She knew him quite well. He was one of her security guards. And the fact that he was found at the scene of the crime, of course, got the gears turning in her head even more than before. James McCord was one of the five arrested at the Watergate. And so she found out about this a bit later than everybody else because John, Martha's husband, tried to hide this news from her for as long as possible because he knew what the mouth of the South was capable of, um, you know, as she was called by the world, what she could do with this news, especially because she had been upset with the Nixon campaign for a while now. And she was, uh, of course, she was loud and proud. So he was worried about what she would do with this news. So he tried to hide it from her for as long as possible. But of course, once James' name was out in the media, people were asking questions and uh, John Mitchell was asked questions about James, seeing as though he was, you know, previously linked to the family and all these things. And he, of course, knew him. Uh, So he was asked by several different news outlets and he described James when asked as, quote, the proprietor of a private security agency who was employed by our committee months ago to assist with the installation of our security system. So super vague. He said this to the Los Angeles Times. And essentially by saying this super, you know, informal or no, super formal uh, description of James, he was implying that he barely knew James McCord while he was actually the man responsible for his wife's security personally. And he clearly had many dealings with him. He was trying to downplay their relationship. Why would he do that? 
if there wasn't anything else involved. So back when the news was first broken to the world about Watergate, John and Martha were in California attending a celebrity Republican fundraising event when the Watergate news first broke and people started first talking about it. Um, And of course, Martha's attention was strategically diverted from all of the news outlets. So she was like kept from all televisions, all radios, all newspapers, and was told that she should just remain in California. And John literally suggested to her that instead of returning to D.C., as was planned, and as as he was going to, he was hightailing it back to D.C. to deal with everything, and he just left his cute little wife to stay in California so she can get some rest and sunshine, which just makes me laugh because I I just, I can't believe that (laughs) he thought that he could keep it from her for that long. Anyway, so he suggested this, and Martha was like, okay, sure, whatever, So essentially, Martha was kept completely in the dark on purpose. And Martha said in a later interview, quote, they had me at a brunch, they had me at a cocktail party, they had me at a reception and a dinner all day Sunday. They kept me going all that day. So Martha found out about James' involvement in Watergate on the way back to Washington. She asked her security guard, the one who would later rip the phone from the wall a few days later after this occurrence, for the newspaper. And that was when she read about the Watergate break-in and her husband's vague, super impersonal description of James McCord, a man that she knew very well. And so I'm imagining her kind of freaking out. I'm imagining like a full pipe and hot cup of tea being thrown in the direction of her security guard because she was probably pissed that people had kept this news from her. It had been days. Clearly there was a reason and something extremely fishy was going on because her husband was acting like this guy that she knew very well and he knew very well was some random hired guy that was just working on the surveillance or something, like not at all involved in anything. So I'm imagining when she found out, it was just chaos on this private jet, probably. And it was when they got to their hotel five days after the break-in that Martha managed to get away from her security guard and call Helen Thomas. She had her reputation for calling reporters, but uh, Helen was the first she decided to call. And so when the phone line cut out after Martha declared that she was leaving her husband, Helen tried to call Martha back, naturally. The call dropped, and she thought something was up because of the way that she kind of told someone to leave her alone, and then the phone line cut out, so she called her back. And the hotel operator who answered the phone when Helen called back said, Miss Mitchell is indisposed and cannot talk. And later on, we would find out, as reported by McCall's Magazine, which is where I read a lot of these details from, they did a really extensive article on this, I'm going to have it linked, that after the phone was ripped from Martha's hand, a doctor was summoned to administer a tranquilizing shot. So she was literally tranquilized, so she couldn't give any more information. And so also, according to McCall's, John Mitchell expressed, quote, amusement at his wife's turning to her, quote, trademark, the telephone and assured the reporter who had called him, so Helen, likely, of his intention to get out of politics after this election because my wife can't handle it, ha ha ha, like was joking about it. When in actuality, he was probably sweating because he knew that something was going on and he knew he was involved and he knew his wife knew. So yeah, he had to turn to the whole, oh, my silly wife with the telephone again, up to no good, you know, that sort of approach because otherwise he was guilty. Struck by these events, especially the dropped phone call, Helen Thomas frantically released a story on the whole incident. 
But in a boy who cried wolf sort of way, not many people took Martha's claims or her insinuated claims or just even the full incident seriously. She was known to like a drink every once in a while and make wild accusations and you know, all of these different remarks that Nixon's aides were quick to point out and these little things about Martha that were not trustworthy. And people just thought it was one of her kind of drunk, crazy antics. So the Nixon campaign and the people involved in his reelection started to spread stories that Martha was crazy. She was an alcoholic and had had a nervous breakdown. But many reporters didn't give up on the full story. They knew something else was lurking. And one of these relentless reporters was a woman named Marsha Kramer. And a few days after the phone was ripped out of the wall, Marsha Kramer, a crime reporter for the New York Daily News, tracked Martha down to a country club in Rye, New York. And upon meeting with her, she described Martha as a, quote, beaten woman with visible bruises on her body. And it was at this country club that Martha had said to reporters, quote, I am a prisoner. I won't stand for this dirty business, which definitely struck a lot of people. This was her second outburst in a matter of days, and clearly something was up. She gave the full detail to reporters about the brutal treatment she had um, and, you know, showing all the bruises, even the stitches that she had gotten at a Los Angeles hospital because of the glass incident. And it was after the second blast of truth from Martha that more people started to actually listen to her. Right after the outburst of the country club, John, Martha's husband, met with President Nixon, his friend Nixon, on not one but two occasions. At the time, no one was really sure what transpired during these meetings, but given the timing, it had to have been juicy, had to have been something that later on people would request transcripts of, people were interested in hearing Uh, Because, of course, you know, every room in the White House is recorded, so people wanted to hear the tapes, and there was a whole drama with the tapes, and the secretary, quote, deleting things on the tapes and all the the drama with Watergate that we know. But um, essentially, John was meeting with Nixon, and it was pretty sketchy why he was meeting with him, likely. It's probably because he was sitting there with Nixon saying, oh my gosh, we're going to be found out. I'm nervous about this. number of different things. So Martha eventually returned to her husband, but on one condition, or two conditions actually. Number one, he would have to resign from Creep and get away from Nixon. And number two, King, Stephen King, the man that assaulted her, should be fired or will be fired. She was like, he needs to be fired or else we're not getting back together. So John did resign, which was actually kind of shocking considering how much he was he was so involved in the campaign, but he resigned. He probably thought it was best for the drama, honestly, to just kind of you know, claim that his wife was crazy and he needed to tend to her and shut her up, essentially, so she would stop leaking things to the press. And that was likely what Nixon kind of encouraged him to do at their two meetings. Um, so John resigns, but... King, Stephen King, had actually been promoted to security chief for the campaign. So that's really annoying. And Martha was definitely pissed about this. But, you know, she was kind of sick and tired of being labeled as crazy to the media and all that. So we're going to get into how she kind of lays low for a bit. 
About a week later, John moved into the Washington office of his old law firm, which, of course, coincidentally is also Nixon's old law firm. So he goes back to work at the firm. And when he was asked about the whole drama, he told his coworkers in a super chill way, quote, my bride was tired of traveling, tired of making speeches, nervous about flying, and I wasn't around much to help. I will say, though, publications like McCall's and Martha's old friend Winzola, who wrote the biography about her that I mentioned earlier, did give John a little bit of credit here and there. Apparently, he was still very, very much in love with his wife, and he did really love and treasure and value his wife, supposedly. But he was scared. He didn't want to put their family at risk with him potentially getting in trouble for things that he didn't even fully, fully know the extent of. And, you know, of course he had to have known things were going on and he was involved in several of them, but he was definitely just panicked at this point and said whatever he could to get his family out of the drama. And I mean, that's concerning, of course, because he kind of was okay with, in a sense, having people call Martha crazy like he was okay with that he was okay with people labeling her as mentally ill and an alcoholic and all of these things that was definitely super damaging to her um so you know honestly I don't forgive him but there are some people saying um in various sources that he was kind of kind of an okay guy which again I don't believe but for example he He was just kind of angry at the situation, apparently. He was more angry at Helen for breaking the news than at Martha for calling Helen, essentially, if that makes sense. He he just kind of wanted Martha to stay out of it. He loved her. He wanted her to stay out of it. But yeah, love is not enough, though, when it comes to keeping a woman like Martha in the dark, in my opinion, at least. But... According to McCall's, an associate at the Committee for the Re-election of the President, so Creep, was quoted right after the Country Club outburst saying, Everyone knows that Mrs. Mitchell has her private personal problems. These are something that only her husband can solve. She can be perfectly charming, and then at other times, especially at night, she is not herself. Ugh, that statement just makes my blood boil. Oh my god, I'm so pissed. (laughs) So papers began running quotes from all sorts of high administration sources saying that Martha was under intense pressure due to the campaign and she's had a nervous breakdown. And it was in September of 1972, just three months after the Watergate break-in and, you know, after John had resigned and things were maybe a little bit looking up for Martha and his marriage, uh, they packed up their things in Washington in hopes of a new, better life in New York. And Martha kept her head down after her husband resigned. Most of her nervous breakdown coverage was kind of over with, and she was kind of grateful for that, I think, because, of course, who likes being labeled as a crazy person when you're just trying to unearth some truth for people that need it? She was definitely in the camp of people that, you know, even if you think you know something, but it's something that is is huge, like the Watergate break-in, which just really, really impacted a whole nation. Uh, you know, she didn't keep quiet about that. And it, it sucks that she was labeled as being crazy because of all that. Honestly, it's really, it's really sucky. But Martha did have a family to think of. She had her two kids. And so her and John packed things up and they moved to New York. But before they left for New York, Martha went to say goodbye to some of her friends slash correspondents in Washington. And she said this really vague statement to them. She said, I want to be sure that my side is revealed and that people know I'm not sitting here a mental case or an alcoholic. She knew something was up. She knew that her husband was involved in something. 
and she tried her best to get it out to the public. The fact that people were trying to restrain her from speaking so strongly to the point where it gave her bruises and cuts, like clearly this information was valuable. Clearly something was going on and clearly she was a threat. She wanted people to know that her side was valid and she didn't want people to, to think that she was an alcoholic or a mental mental case, as she puts it, because she wasn't. She was just trying to get the truth out. So after this cryptic statement, Martha carried on her nice little housewife duties and made a home for her family in New York. They moved into a massive Fifth Avenue apartment that had 19-foot ceilings and a view of Central Park. And they went to glitzy social gatherings again. And at one particular party for Barbara Walters, Martha, her old comical self, apparently joked, why do they keep asking me about the Watergate affair? I never had any Watergate affair. Ha ha ha. Like poking fun at the drama because... Making light of the situation was really all that she could do, seeing as though any other treatment of the events made her into a woman who was a drunk and mentally ill. So she did what she could, and I'm sad for her, honestly, at this point in time. I I can imagine the trust also that she has with her husband completely evaporated because she knows he's up to no good or was up to something or involved in something, something creepy. So yeah, but she was the boy who cried wolf when she tried to help, which is so devastating. But when news started circulating about what actually happened at Watergate and was looming underneath that tiny tip of an iceberg of the break-in and what was really happening, or what had really happened or tried to happen, Martha was rather tight-lipped in interviews, which was really rare for her. But it could be due to the fact that no one really took her seriously and maybe she was afraid of getting hurt again, or because she just didn't want the entirety of this scandal to land on her husband because ultimately it would affect her and the kids, and so she stayed quiet. And it would take years for Martha's name to be fully, or even partially, cleared. The next year, in 1973, Martha Mitchell stood on the stand and gave sworn testimony about Watergate as part of a suit against creep officials, the ones that she said were up to dirty business. And Stephen King, the man who had ripped the phone out of the wall, was actually not at all involved in the suit or at all criminally charged in the Watergate scandal. Not at all. And two more years passed before anyone came forward to validate her story of the phone being ripped out of the wall, the abuse that she suffered, and just all of that, all of the above. And so according to Newsweek in 1975, James McCord, so the former security guard who was convicted of conspiracy in the affair. He was the one found at the scene that Martha knew. He admitted on the record that, quote, basically the woman was kidnapped, validating her story. After his confession, Martha told the New York Times, quote, thank God someone is coming to my assistance. I was not only kidnapped, but I was threatened at gunpoint, and you can put that in. This old 1972 article in McCall's, uh, where I'm getting all of these quotes from and a lot of this information, aside from some other news sources that I also cross-referenced and have it all linked, it's really so interesting reading from the pages of this because this story was actually published in 1972, so it was at the time of the events. And it's interesting because it was published, it was like put out into the world before the outcome of the Watergate scandal was fully hashed out and we found out all of the people to blame and how Nixon and the the tapes and all the things, um, you know, Deep Throat, all of those different things and how it ended. And so I do want to read the last paragraph of the McCall's magazine piece because it it really leaves the story in an interesting way um, because, of course, we now know the truth. But 
It said, Bonnie Angelo of Time Magazine has been speculating lately on a question that has bothered so many of Martha's friends. What will happen to Martha if John Mitchell goes to jail, or even if he just loses his status, his reputation, and his money? If all of this disappears, won't it destroy her? In the way that stories travel in high circles, Bonnie's question got to Martha in her lonely splendor on Fifth Avenue. Martha, it is said, laughed out loud and said, tell Bonnie she's stupid if she thinks that about me. Nixon later told an interviewer named David Frost in 1977 that Martha was a distraction to John Mitchell, such that no one was minding the store, metaphorically, I suppose, and if it hadn't been for Martha Mitchell, there'd have been no Watergate. Years later, at Martha's funeral, an anonymous supporter had sent a flower arrangement of white chrysanthemums that spelled, Martha was right. And sadly, how Martha's story ends, I don't want to dwell too much on it because she did kind of end her days not with John. They were in a very weird place um, after all these events and after she spoke out so candidly about what had happened to her. And, you know, there was definitely drama there. She ended up pretty lonely in her last final days, kind of supporting herself strictly on funds she got from her supporters and her friends that were, you know, writing stories about her still and things of that nature. She really didn't have much to her name. It really is sad how her story ends, all because she really couldn't come back from this crazy, crazy woman tale that was told about her. And it's really sad, honestly. I mean, I ultimately think that her legacy lives on and people will We'll hear about this for for years to come, hopefully, Um, but it is sad what someone calling you crazy because they don't want the information getting out, that they were involved in wiretapping or they were involved in something sketchy, like they want to keep Martha from proclaiming these things and and setting the truth straight, setting the record straight, and so they're going to call her crazy because it's, it's something that people can understand and it's something that gets them off easy. And so I urge you guys, whenever someone is calling someone crazy do the due diligence to figure out why they're saying that and get the other side of the story um one little parting fact so there's this thing called the martha mitchell effect which in psychology it's kind of an unofficial concept where it's it's a tendency to diagnose someone as mentally ill simply because a story that they tell is so bizarre they declare them as delusional without actually checking whether the story is true. It's basically when someone is kind of wrongly convicted of being, or wrongly, wrongly stated as being mentally ill, which is really interesting that people still use her name in this context, but it's good that hopefully, you know, with her name being used in this psychological context, she will help other people find justice for being called, quote, crazy when they're not. So yeah, that is Martha Mitchell's story, guys. I wanted to share it today. There's definitely a lot more involved that I just didn't have the time to share because this has been a long episode already. But I do urge you to look into Martha Mitchell further, read up about Watergate, the real story, and how things ended up there, if you're curious. If I kind of opened a can of worms here and you're like, wait a minute, I kind of forget how Watergate ended up, definitely do some reading. It's really interesting to read about it now that 
I personally care about it, not that I'm being forced to in school. I have a bunch of awesome sources linked on the show notes of this episode that detail all the things I talked about today in further detail than I did. And yeah, I'm looking forward to next week's episode, guys. I do want to say before I go, though, that I am doing Vlogmas over on my YouTube channel. So if you go to youtube.com slash hellokatie, K-A-T-Y, you will find that I'm posting vlogs every single day or nearly every single day this December. So definitely check that out. And I will talk to you guys all in my next episode. Bye.